Hi, I'm Ben with uh, Grace Community Church. I'm one of the pastors here, and I wanted to thank you for watching this sermon. I pray that it serves you well, that it will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, the Bible, that it will deepen your love for Christ and help you to pursue holiness in your own life. And we are glad that you're here watching this video, but uh, we we also pray that this video would not be a, a replacement for your own local church and sitting under the preaching and teaching of your own pastor. Uh, but we do pray that it, it helps you, that it edifies you. If you have any questions about this sermon or our church in general, feel free to visit our website, gracecommunitychurchberea.com and hit the contact us button. And we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. And may God be glorified through your listening to this sermon. Well, last week we began to examine the ministry of the two witnesses, and we determined by comparing Scripture with Scripture that the two witnesses symbolize or represent the church. Indeed, uh, the vision that John reveals in chapter 11 encompasses the entire church age. The vision begins with the measuring of the temple, which symbolizes the setting apart of the people of God, and um, ends with the rapture of the church. Additionally, the vision reveals, and this is a great encouragement to us, the successful ministry of the church. And what is the successful ministry of the church? It is that the church is successful in preaching the whole counsel of God. The church is successful in taking the gospel to all the nations. But not all the news in the vision is good news. Because the vision also reveals the persecution of the church Increasing persecution of the church. Tremendous persecution of the church. And this pers persecution is organized and executed by the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. So last week we learned first about the authority of the two witnesses. And where does the authority of the church come from? Well, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Jesus said that he would grant, that he would give his authority to his two witnesses. Therefore, the authority of the church is both divine in its origin and its nature. And we see Jesus giving this authority to the church in Matthew chapter 28, which in particularly the end of Matthew 28, which we commonly know as the Great Commission. Second, we learned about the assignment of the church. And what was the assignment of the church? The church was given the assignment to preach the gospel for 1,260 days. Um, and I thought, was thinking about this more this week. I think one of the reasons why we are given this number of 1,260 days 
is because this is what the church, this is what we as Christians are to be doing every day. We are to be evangelizing the lost. We are to be preaching the gospel. We are to be, to be discipling one another. It's not a, a once in a while activity. It's to be an everyday activity. So the church is to do this for 1,260 days. In other words, every day that uh, we exist, uh, that should be top of mind for us. And then thirdly, we learned about the protection of the church. And we saw that the church will always be protected as it is faithful to the assignment that God has given to the church. And the, the protection of the church is symbolized by the fire that comes out of the mouth of the two witnesses and uh, consumes their foes. And then last week we ended on really a tremendous high note because we learned that the power of the prophets <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is the same power that the church has available to them today. I, I know sometimes we struggle to read the Old Testament. But we shouldn't do that. Because throughout the New Testament, what do we see? We see the power of God on display through the prophets. We see what God does in mighty, miraculous ways for his people. And I'm afraid that many times we look at that and we think, well, that was good for them back then, but it has no bearing on us today. Wrong. I want to continue to beat this drum until we understand that the same power that the prophets displayed, the same power that allowed the prophets to do these miracles, that same power is available to us today as the church. And we must believe that. If we don't believe that, why are we here? Why do we gather? Why do we do a VBS? Why do we disciple? Why do we do anything if we don't believe that the power of God displayed in the prophets throughout the New Testament isn't the same power that's available to us today? We have to keep in mind, again, that uh, we, we mentioned in particular Moses and Elijah because of the text. And we have to keep in mind that those, they were just men. They were just the vessels through which God worked. Well, today, the church is the, his chosen vessel through which his power is on display. Um, now, this is kind of a, a, a rough change of gears, I apologize. But and then we, we looked at the, the protection of the church. We talked about the, the, we, the church accesses the power of God through our prayers. And therefore, if we are a prayerless church or a prayerless individual, we are robbing ourselves of the power of God. But there's another component <coughs> to the power of the church that we didn't touch on last week. And we find that in verse 4. So let's look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, <coughs> you may be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with anything? And how do we see the power of the church in this verse? Well, here again, this is the benefit of having some knowledge of the Old Testament. What John does here is he reaches back into the Old Testament 
in Zechariah chapter 4, and he brings it forward until the, the, the time that he was writing, and it's still valuable for us today. Here's the backstory. In 536 B.C., some of the exiles, some of the Jewish exiles, were allowed to leave Babylon, and they were sent back to Jerusalem in order to begin to rebuild the temple. But something funny happened, as often does with construction projects. Uh, for the next 16 years, not much prog progress was made. So in 520 B.C., <coughs> excuse me, God gives the Old Testament Zechariah a series of eight visions. And the purpose of these visions was to motivate and to encourage his people in the work that they were doing to build this, uh, to rebuild the temple. And one of the visions that's recorded in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah the prophet, he saw this beautiful golden lampstand and it's putting off this brilliant shining light. And then next to the lampstand, Zechariah saw two olive trees. Now each one of the olive trees was connected by a pipe to the lampstand. And of course, they were supplying the necessary fuel in order for the light to continue to be lit. <coughs> Excuse me. What do these two olive trees represent? Well, one of them represented the prince by the name of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel represented the royal kingship. The second olive tree represented Joshua, who was the high priest. So he represented the anointed priesthood. And as you might have guessed, <coughs> the oil flowing from uh, into the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit. Now, even if you're not familiar with the overall story of the two lampstands and the lampstand and the two olive trees, you're probably familiar with a verse from Zechariah chapter 4. Because in verse 6, this is what Zechariah recorded. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You say, well, that's all well and good. But what does that mean for us today? Well, here's what it means. Richard Phillips helps us. He writes, by employing the vision of the two olive trees, Revelation depicts the two means of the church's witness. Christians bear a kingly testimony to Christ by proclaiming his royal word. <coughs> bears priestly testimony by offering his gospel praying and administering the sacraments that show forth Christ's atoning blood. Here's the point. We do all of that in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not asked to do any of that in our own power or in our own strength. Now remember, the church has been given the authority to preach the word of God. The church has been given the assignment to preach the word of God. The church has promised protection by God, and therefore the power of God is available to us as we carry out the assignment. In fact, the power of God is available to the church until 
<coughs> the assignment is completed. <coughs> Excuse me. Look with me at verse 7. Now I apologize. I know this is irritating for you to listen to and it's irritating for me to do. I apologize. Verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the two witnesses or the church, when they had finished their, their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, if you would like some bullet points from here on out, here's the first bullet point, and it is the death of the two witnesses, the death of the two witnesses. Let me read it again. Pay close attention to what it says here. Look at verse 7 again. <clears throat> and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now that should be shocking to you. The beast that rises from the bombless pit or from the abyss will make war on the church. He will conquer the church and he will kill the church. That's what the text says. And we have to understand this in the terms that this is an intentional, organized campaign by the beast to eradicate the church from the face of the earth. Beloved, there is coming a day when for a short period of time, the church will be wiped away from the face of the earth. I don't necessarily think this means that every Christian will be killed. I do believe that what this means is that the church as an organization, its voice will finally be silenced. The beast wages war on both the message and the messengers. And the beast kills the messengers in order to silence the message. And we ask ourselves, well, how, how could God allow this to happen? After all, didn't Jesus promise that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it? Yes, Jesus did make that promise. How then, or why, what is the reason that God allows this to happen. Here it is. God allows this to happen because it is at that point that the church has successfully completed our God-given assignment. The gospel has been preached to all the nations. And at that point, our assignment is done. And God allows the beast to kill the church. It's shocking, isn't it? But what we have here is exactly what Daniel described in his vision of the future back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. Daniel wrote hundreds of years before this, as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It's the same thought. It's the same vision, same prophecy. And who is it 
that ultimately prevails over the church. It's the beast that comes up from the abyss. Now, immediately our mind goes to who is it? Can we identify the beast? Yes, we can. And it's not that person you're thinking of, by the way. The beast symbolizes something that is powerful enough to eradicate the church. Jeffrey Wilson writes that the beast represents those anti-Christian powers in the world which seek to silence the church's witness, resulting in the apparent triumph of the forces of evil. Why is the church still alive today? Do you know why? Because we have not completed our God-given assignment. And until that day arrives, no one, no power can kill the church. Persecute, yes. Do a lot of damage, yes. They cannot kill the church. Remember, this is so important, we, we have to keep in mind that this vision had to mean something to the believers in the first century. It had to mean something to the recipients of this letter. Now, who do you think they would automatically identify as the beast? The mighty Roman Empire. We know the Roman Empire liked to persecute Christians. They liked to fill the Colosseum with Christians and set the lines loose on them. They liked to take Christians and wrap them up in tar and light them up as human torches. There would have been no doubt in the minds of these first century believers who the beast was. It was the mighty Roman Empire. In fact, we can go back to Daniel and we see that we can make the case even from Daniel that that would be the case. It would be the mighty Roman Empire. And the mighty Roman Empire did their best to silence the church, to eradicate the church. But you know what? They were not successful. And throughout the church age, the church has been subjected to governments <coughs> led by believers, uh, excuse me, by unbelievers who are influenced by their own sinful nature and are influenced by demonic powers to attack and persecute the church. You would do yourself a favor if you'd go read some church history and to see how the church has been attacked down through the ages. You say, I, I don't know if I could handle that. Well, here's what you're missing, the protection of God and all of those attacks because the church survives. It's really an encouragement. You know, uh, when we talk about persecution of the church, beloved, it's still happening today. It's happening in places like North Korea. It's happening in places like China. It's happening in places like Iran. In a multitude of other places, just because 
We have the freedom to stand up here and preach the gospel without fear of repercussion. Doesn't mean that it's this way around the world because it is not. I watched a documentary this week about the spread of the gospel in Iran. At one time in 1979, the Shah was kicked out and the Ayatollah Khomeini rose to power. And they declared it wasn't just Iran anymore, it was the Islamic Republic of Iran. And guess what? They imposed their religion on everyone. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was estimated that 95% or more of the population was Muslim. And of course, they attacked Christians, and many Christians had to flee. Many Christians were, per- were persecuted and put to death. But the latest numbers show that Iran is approaching 50% of the population as being Christians. Why? Because you can't kill the church. 1940, the communists began persecuting the church in China. I think it's something like 700,000 Christians were either expelled or killed. And now, what is the growth of the, the underground church in China today? It's estimated to be a billion people. Why? You can't kill the church. Augustine said persecution, is the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it, it, it proves itself to be true each and every time. Now, be careful about praying for a revival of a church in America. You know how it would have to happen? Persecution. Persecution. You can't kill the church until the church has finished their assignment. Shortly before the seventh trumpet sounds, (coughs) signaling the final climactic judgment of God, (coughs) the beast will temporarily overcome the church. So we have the death of the two witnesses, and then we see the display of the two witnesses. Look at verses 8 and 9. And their dead bodies... Remember, this is symbolic. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. What John sees here and what he records here is a scene of great indignity. And a scene of great contempt for the church. Now, many of you in here are probably too young to live through the death of an American president. The last one, I believe, was uh, Ronald Reagan. And this doesn't just happen in America, but for instance, in America, when the president dies, they will take his body to the Capitol building and he'll lie in state for a number of days. And thousands upon thousands of people will pass by and and view the body, paying their respects. It's a sign of respect. It says a lot about a culture, how we treat the dead. But when it comes to the church, they won't allow it to have any dignity at all. 
They don't care what happens to it. John symbolizes this by saying that the the body of the church lays out in the open for three and a half days and people come by not to pay their respects but to rejoice over the fact that the church is dead, that the church is gone, that the church is nothing more than a shell of what it once was. What are we to make of the location where the bodies of the two witnesses are displayed? Well, notice that John makes it clear that he is speaking symbolically. He says that the corpses of the two witnesses or the church, they're laid out for the entire world to see in the great city, which is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, it doesn't take uh, too much thinking to get a handle of what these two cities represent. When we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, what do we think of? We think of gross sexual immorality. When we think of the the land of Egypt, we, we might be tempted to say, well, it was the land where God's people were enslaved and in bondage, and that is true. But beyond that, it was the land where the word of God was defied time and time and time again. What are we to make of the reference to where the Lord was crucified? Now, there are, there are good men who believe that this is a reference to Jerusalem. But keep in mind that John is speaking in symbolic terms. So, and, and by the way, Jerusalem is not normally referred to as the great city. Rather, it is referred to as the holy city. And I think what John's reference here uh, is to the place where God's truth was ultimately, ultimately rejected in the crucifixion of Christ. So what is John describing here? Well, John describes the world in terms of sin, a world that continually defies the word of God and ultimately denies, the rejection, uh, denies the, God's truth in the crucifixion of Jesus. I think it's best to see this. John is simply describing the world. He's describing the world. And for three and a half days, again, symbolizing a very short period of time, the world will gaze on the dead, lifeless body of the church. And their hatred of the church will be on full display as they refuse to give the bodies a proper burial. (laughs) Again, this is a demonstration of the contempt they have for the church. Good riddance is their attitude. Good riddance. Uh, We don't care if you rot in the street because it's a reminder to us that the church is no longer a torment to us. In fact, they are so overjoyed over the demise of the church that they turn it into some kind of macabre holiday in which they give gifts to one another. Look at verses, uh, look at verse 10, excuse me. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The world thinks to themselves, we're finally rid of them people. Finally, we don't have to worry about them tormenting us with the truth. 
By the way, what is the greatest weapon that we have in the world? It is the word of God. It is truth. Always have confidence in the word of God. Remember, God said it will accomplish the purpose for which I intend it. But they're happy. They're glad. What we see here is the thrill of casting off all restraint. Anything, everything goes. There's no one to pull us back. There's no one to tell us we're wrong. There's no one to condemn us. Could you imagine living in a world like that? Now, I wonder if they thought to themselves, well, obviously, if there is a God, he's not much of a God because he couldn't even protect his own people. We've overcome them. We've conquered them. By the way, that word rejoices refers to wicked satisfaction. They're so pleased with with themselves, but their pleasure is short-lived. Look at verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life (coughs) from God enters them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, by the way, this voice is going to be heard around the world. And what's it say? Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Now the Bible teaches that the servant is not greater than the master. Say, what does that mean? Well, Jesus was crucified at the hands of sinful mankind. Therefore, the church is put to death at the hands of sinful mankind. And just as Jesus was resurrected, so too will the church be brought back to life. And as we think back through the scriptures, we see that this is a cycle that is repeated throughout the scriptures. Let me give you just one example. One good example of this would be Israel. They were exiled but ultimately they were brought back, correct? You remember that strange vision of Ezekiel? He has this vision, and he sees this valley filled with dry bones. Now let me read to you the account. It's Ezekiel 37, the first six verses. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. Now keep in mind here, there were many. It wasn't just one skeleton. There were many. And Ezekiel's been being taken on a tour of them. And he led me around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. You know what that means, very dry? They've been dead a long time. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And what a great response by Ezekiel. And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, 
Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Now, here's the important part. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, think about this. Ezekiel's told to give this message, preach this message. Now, you talk, you talk about a dead congregation. Here's the ultimate dead congregation, right? But what is the point? The point is, when God works, they will know that he is what? He is God. This wasn't just some exercise. There's a point to it. <coughs> and what was the purpose of God putting breath back into all these dead bodies? Again, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, after three and a half days... And God breathes life into the two witnesses, into the church, and to the dismay and the amazement of the world, they stand up. The watching world thought they were dead and gone, but here they are, they're alive again. And at that moment, they will know the Lord is God. There's no other explanation. They will know. The Lord is God. And so an icy fear will grip their hearts as a realization that their doom is about to take place. They hear the voice of God calling to his church, come up here. And the world who celebrated and made merry over the demise watch as they ascend to heaven, I believe, with the glory cloud of God. So we have the death of the two witnesses. We have the display of the two witnesses. Now we have the doom of those who dwell on the earth. Look at verse 13. And at that hour, say, what, what's that mean? At that hour, as the church is called to heaven, as they rise through the skies, the ground beneath their feet begins to shake. There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. As, though the, as the unbelievers, those who rejoiced over the demise of the church, watch, God unleashes another judgment against them. A great earthquake takes place, and multitudes of people are killed but those who are not killed, they're scared out of their wits. And John says they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, <laughs> some commentators believe this means that some of the people repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ. I will admit that that's certainly a possibility, but I'm not sure that's the meaning. The reason I say that is because God's witnesses, the church has already been removed. And this event takes place immediately before the second coming of Christ. The final judgment has begun, and those who dwell on the earth, they know it. They know their doom is imminent. And the earthquake reveals God's anger against those who have killed his people. As one commentator said, as long as the church proclaims the word, there is time for salvation. But when the witnesses ascend to heaven, their message is no longer heard. The time of repentance comes to an end. 
because without the power of the word, there are no conversions. Why do we preach the word? Because without the word, there are no conversions. Beloved, the point is this. The time for repentance is limited. The day of salvation will one day pass. Uh, I talked with my brother yesterday and he told me that he just performed the funeral of a 53-year-old man who had 10 children and was killed instantly on his ATV. Do you think when that man saddled up to go out and have some fun that he'd never come home? Of course not. See, the point is, we don't know the day and time of our death. Therefore, we must prepare to meet God while there's still time. Have you done so? You know, Tim Keller passed away this week. And some of his last words revealed that he was not only ready to go, but he was also eager to go. I can't help but think of the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who on his final day on this earth knew that his time was approaching. And his family wanted to go get the doctor and see what the doctor could do. And he said, no. No. Don't rob me of my glory. Are you ready? Ready? 